right, well, this morning we will be in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 22, be looking at verses 1 through 13. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 through 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You can find our passage on page uh, 882 in the, um, I'm sorry, eight, sorry, that is 881 in the Pew Bible. Uh, hear the word of the Lord. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him, being Jesus, to death, uh, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into, Jesus, into Judas, uh, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to his people. So I remember as a brand new Christian when I was 16 years old, and I wasn't raised in church, never really read the Bible uh, much, and so when I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible a good bit, and uh, I would sit down and read my Bible, uh, and I really would focus on the gospel accounts. I want to learn about more about Jesus. And, but this part of the gospel, you know, this part of the gospel of Luke always just gave me a knot in my stomach. Uh, because, you know, if you've been a Christian for a while, if you've read the gospel accounts, you know what's coming. You know what's coming. We've been watching Jesus heal and do miracles. He's been sticking it to the Pharisees, calling, calling out his own disciples, doing all kinds of wonderful things. But now the time has come in the gospel of Luke. And even though it is necessary, it is always, always painful to read. It is, it is hard to anticipate the suffering of our Savior, to know what he is about to endure. But without this part of the gospel, we wouldn't have any good news to sing about. We wouldn't be Christians. We wouldn't be here this morning. Because we're entering a part of Luke's gospel that is definitional to us as Christians. Uh, you know, if we, you know, maybe we could lose, you know, if we lost one of the miracles or something out of Luke's account or lost one of the encounters with the Pharisees, we, we would lose something to be sure. But if you lost this part, the last part of the gospel of Luke, you lose the gospel. And so, and so it, 
if we don't understand what Jesus is doing here, and then his suffering and his death, then, then we don't understand the gospel itself. And today's text is all about preparation. First, we're going to see Judas preparing to betray Jesus. And then we're going to see disciples preparing the Passover lamb, which I guarantee you Luke is using a double speak there. He's speaking a greater significance that we know as he writes looking back. But we'll consider each of those this morning, how Judas prepares to betray Christ and then how the disciples prepare the Passover lamb. So first in verses 1 through 6, we see the preparing for the betrayal of Jesus. And, and, and we observe here the evil intent of the religious leaders. The chief priests and the scribes of the Jews want to put Jesus to death, but uh, wouldn't you know it, they're afraid of all the people who support him. Now add to that the, the, the swelling crowds that, are, that, that would gather annually for the Feast of Passover, where you have just thousands upon thousands of people and even more supporters of Jesus uh, there, it makes it particularly difficult and, and actually very easy to spark a riot if they, uh, if they arrest Jesus in plain view of the people. Um, but the, but we, come, you know, we come to the question, though, is why do the religious leaders hate Jesus so much? Now, not all of them did. Like, I mean, Nicodemus didn't hate Jesus, and he was a Pharisee. He was confused, but likely uh, became a believer himself. And we're told in the scriptures that several of the Pharisees actually became followers of Christ. Uh, but uh, but so, now, some try to, um, it, it's weird, because some will say, well, why did, why did people hate Jesus in our society? They'll talk about this, and, and, and they'll put a political spin on it. They'll say, well, you know, uh, they, they, the conservative religious people hated him because he was a progressive, radical activist, all right? And Jesus was a, a, a political rebel. Others, I've heard it, uh, um, uh, argue that, oh, no, 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 it was the liberals who wanted to do it because Jesus was standing up for conservative American values, and so Jesus had to go. All right, I literally heard that, okay? All of that misses the point. The religious leaders of the Jews are not wild progressives, and they're not evangelical Christian pastors, okay? They're not. They were Pharisees who stuck to a very specific interpretation of the Old Testament uh, that went through a very thick uh, uh, tradition of the rabbis, uh, and, and it's so much so that they actually would lean more on the tradition of the rabbis, even if it came into conflict with the very word of God itself. Jesus called them out on about this uh, several times. But there were also Sadducees who had compromised uh, theologically, who had compromised with the Romans, who enjoyed privileged positions uh, in, uh, in society, and they didn't want to rock the boat. So they, didn't want, they wanted Jesus out. Um, uh, but whether they were Sadducees or Pharisees, they were all of them hypocrites. And hypocrisy hates nothing more than the genuine article. And there's no one more genuine than Jesus Christ. They hated Jesus also because the people followed him and they were worried about losing their grip, losing their power. And so Jesus has got to go. And this brings us to uh, finally Satan's return to the story. Uh, you know, you remember, remember Satan? 
Yeah, yeah, all right. Well, uh, it, we ha he hasn't been featured in the Gospel of Luke since chapter 4, verse 13, which was after the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. And Luke said there that Satan departed from him until an opportune time. Well, guess what? This is the opportune time. Here is the hour of Satan. Satan comes and he enters Judas. Now, Luke has already told us that this would happen um, earlier in Luke 6, 16, where he identified Judas, who would become the traitor. Uh, but what does Luke mean here um, uh, about Satan entering Jesus? Uh, despite the excitement that, uh, you know, as excited as some might get uh, about this concept, uh, we aren't exactly sure metaphysically what demon possession entails except to indicate generally some kind of demonic residence or at least control of a person. The Gospel of John tells us that Satan had already before this put it into uh, Judas's heart to betray Jesus. And so when he effectively took up residence in, in Judas's heart, he was influencing G uh, Judas to be sure, but in reality, he was influencing Judah, uh, Judah, uh, Judas to do what he already wanted to do in his flesh. We see another instance of uh, satanic influence identified uh, in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, with Ananias, where Peter declares that Satan has filled Ananias' heart uh, to lie to the Holy Spirit. But whatever satanic possession may mean in metaphysical terms, uh, we can't really be clear on that. But what is clear is that the matter at hand is not merely uh, uh, an internal dispute amongst the disciples of a, you know, a, a problem with a disgruntled disciple or, or a Jewish political or religious matter that needs to be adjudicated in-house. The work of Satan here reveals that there is a conflict at work on a cosmic level between good and evil, between God and the powers that would be. And, and so here is what we are, you know, we, are, we are reminded by the Apostle Paul. This is where the real battle is. Our real battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of, of evil in the heavenly places, as he says in Ephesians 6.12, which is what he comes, right, that's right after he talks about putting on the armor of God. Here begins Satan's hour of power, but it will only last a short while. Yet we have to understand that the, the, the influence of Satan, the power of, of evil in the world, didn't just end uh, with, with Jesus and, and the cross that the church still faces very serious and real conflicts. What we see here in the Gospel of Luke is at once a, a historical and spiritual reality that establishes the gospel of grace. Satan is at work, and God is using him as an unwitting pawn to achieve the gospel promises for his people. It is historical, it is foundational, it is unchangeable. But at the same time, we are reminded that, that the conflict between good and evil, this, this spiritual battle continues today. That was Paul's point in Ephesians 6. 
Now, it is decidedly different, this side of the cross, the reasons for which we'll, we'll explore in the, in the coming weeks as we, as we go through the passion of, 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 of Christ. Um, but the church still continues to strive against the forces of darkness. Paul describes the people of God as, as, as stars shining in the darkness, holding out the word of life to a lost and dying generation. And so, and so we face this battle between good and evil, between light and darkness, even right here in Meridian, in our church, in our homes, in our very lives, as we fight against the flesh and the world and the devil. And, and, and to this we may add uh, the, a concern for the church that, that faces a danger of becoming like the religious leaders of the Jews, of various stripes. Various stripes where they're uh, coming from different angles that, have, that decide, that come to a, maybe a silent decision or an unwitting uh, conclusion that the Jesus of the Gospels has got to go. He's too inconvenient for our present agenda. He's getting in the way of what I want to accomplish. And so we need to ignore him. We need, to get, we, need to, we need to just cut that part of the Bible out. We need to just skip over that section. We're just not going to focus on that. We're not going to highlight on that. We're going to neglect the text. We're going to excise the text with their scissors. Um, or, we're just gonna, uh, or, or we're just going to disregard it and the meaning of it. Um, and so we, all, we need to add to this a, a consideration of, G, of, of Judas's base motivation, which was covetousness. And greed. The reformer Heinrich Bullinger uh, said hundreds of years ago when he wrote this, he, he, and he says that we still see today that plenty, plenty of men and women are willing to betray the gospel for the love of money and for the love of power and for the love of the world. We are convicted, challenged, and chastised too much by Jesus, so we must neglect, negate, and nullify his influence. We will make him into a soft spiritual guru that just says nice, warm, cuddly things. We'll make him into a super conservative manly titan that, that takes down the liberals and drinks their tears. We'll make him into whatever we need him to be so that we can increase our security and we don't have to change. And we don't have to be convicted. This is a very real and present danger for the church for any denomination, that over time we will become like the religious leaders here in the Gospels. That we may, while we may not be physically seeking to put Jesus to death, we may be seeking to put him out to pasture so he won't bother us so much. Pastors and elders can still betray Jesus by casting aside the Gospel and putting a counterfeit in its place. And so we see the, the, the preparation for the betrayal of Jesus. And then secondly, we see the preparing of the Passover lamb in verses 7 through 13. And in doing so, what we see is uh, what's highlighted for us in verse 7 is the fulfilling of the feast of Passover. I have no doubt that Luke is aware of the significance of his words in verse 7. 
that he's using a bit of a double, double entendre there, double speak there to, to highlight because indeed Christ is the Passover lamb. Jesus, as Luke presents him to us, is the fulfillment of the Passover meal. It's fitting that we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper right after this, isn't it? The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were actually two distinct but related festivals that were held back to back. Um, and we find, and they both have a, a common reference point in the Exodus. The unleavened bread is a reference to the, the speedy exit that God commanded the people. They didn't have time to let the, uh, the bread rise, so they, uh, they had it unleavened. And so they didn't put any leaven in it. And so, and so now that was, became a sign of their deliverance. As they celebrate that, then of course the Passover lamb is connected with the, the 10th plague that God wrought upon uh, Egypt where he, uh, where he sent the angel of death to take the life of all the firstborn of Egypt. And the way to escape it was not merely to be an Israelite, but to take the Passover lamb and to paint the blood of the lamb over your door. And the angel of death would pass over the house, thus the festival of Passover where they would eat, and, and the eldest son would say to the father, Father, what do these things mean? And the father would explain about how the Lord had redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt, and that they belonged to him as his people. And so, and so the Lord clarified, though, um, that what he did in passing over and, uh, and, and not killing the firstborn sons of Israel is that that meant that the, the lives of all the firstborn sons of Israel now, now belong to the Lord. And also the firstborn males of all the flocks. So the firstborn males of the flocks, they had to be sacrificed at the temple. They had to be given back to the Lord. But the sons would be redeemed by a tax paid at the temple. That's what the, when um, uh, Jesus' parents go to, go to the temple and they're paying the, 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 they're paying the, the, the poor had a very poor tax they could pay and they paid what they could. Uh, to go redeem him. That's when he run, they run into Simeon. But the Lord declared uh, later also, he said, but in lieu of taking your sons, because basically he said, all your firstborn sons belong to me. You need to redeem them. But also, basically now they need to become like mine and work for me. But instead of taking them, I'm going to take the Levites in their place. The Levites will take the place of, of the sons of Israel in terms of service unto the Lord. All of that is to say that we have here a celebration of when the judgment of God passed over Israel, redeemed their sons, freed them from slavery by the blood of the lamb and through the priesthood of the Levites. And here we have the lamb of God who we're told takes away the sin of the world, who redeems us and frees us. So the scriptures tell us is the high priest of a priesthood better than Aaron and the Levites. That he is the true firstborn son of God who gives us the right to be called the children of God. He is the pure sacrificial lamb without blemish or defect. After whom no sacrifice can be offered because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And so we need to bear this in mind. As, as we go through this time and think through the life and ministry of Christ, and consider the profound significance of, of, of this for our very souls, of who Jesus is, 
what he represents, that all those things in the past are coalescing together and intersecting all, uh, all in Jesus. And then we find the preparing of the Passover. Jesus is the, the fulfillment of the Feast of Passover, but then we're given this description of, of the disciples as they prepare the Passover meal. So Jesus sends Peter and John to, to go get everything ready the, because the Passover had to be eaten, eaten within the walls of Jerusalem. That was a requirement in the law. And, and so what would happen is representatives from the family uh, or, or the group would go take the lamb to the temple for ritual slaughter. It had to be killed in a particular way by the priest. Once the priest had done so, they would, uh, they, and they had removed the entrails for the offering, uh, they would take the, then, uh, then the representatives would take the, the, the lamb back and they would roast it and eat it together. Now, Jesus, uh, for, for his part, had either prearranged to have a house ready for him, uh, um, and he tells the disciples how to find the guy, uh, or he, um, he has some, uh, he's displayed some supernatural knowledge, which he does from time to time. Um, now, there, there are several scholars that, that, that I find very helpful that they take the prearrangement um, understanding. It's perfectly fine to do. Uh, I, for me, it just strikes me as odd that Luke takes time to point out that Jesus is a really good planner, uh, that he's very organized. You can see how he organized this. And, uh, and so rather instead, it, I, it strikes me that Luke is highlighting a kind of supernatural moment where Christ is showing that he knows exactly what's going on, that he knows what's happening, and he, and he is prepared for it. And just, to, I mean, similarly, I mean, it's, you go back to the, well, you know, throw your fishing line over there. You'll get the fish, and in the fish's mouth will be the two coins, that kind of thing. That's what I believe is, uh, is certainly going on uh, right here with Jesus. And um, this, would, uh, this, this would reinforce um, uh, Jesus' predictions about what's about to happen to him concerning his death and uh, his resurrection and the, and the point of this, and the point of this, the fact that Jesus knows this and displays this knowledge is that everything that is about to happen is according to the plan of God, is according to the knowledge of God. And so as much as we need to um, take seriously the, the reality of the spiritual battle that is taking place in this text, and even in the world around us today, as Paul tells us to do, and even though we recognize that Satan is personally active, in the world, here, is, is opposing Jesus, and his opposition to Jesus continues as he prowls around like a roaring lion, as Peter tells us. God is yet in control of everything. Jesus' life is not going to be taken from him, even though Satan thinks he's doing the taking. Jesus is laying his life down for his people, for us. He's giving his life up. As the, uh, as the Passover sacrifice. Jesus is preparing himself to be the Passover lamb. And so this brings us to uh, just a, a final question that we need to consider this morning, which is, which do you have for Jesus today? Do you have a price or a place? We are, presenting, we are presented with a striking contrast between Judas, the disciple, and the unnamed man who gives his upper room for Jesus to have the Passover. As one author observed, one has a price for Jesus, the other has a place for Jesus. 
Judas had a price, 30 shekels of silver. And what is the price we need to ask ourselves that would would entice us to gain the world and lose our souls? How much money, comfort, and wealth would it take for you to betray the gospel today? I ask you because people do it every day. But this unnamed man in Jerusalem didn't have a price to betray Jesus. He had a place for Jesus. Do you have a place for him? Will you receive him in your heart to take up residence in you by his spirit? All the comforts in the world will not give us what we seek and what we truly need. They can distract us. They can give pleasure to us that will last a moment. But all they bring in the end is eternal sorrow. But Christ brings eternal life. And in time, he brings the riches and glory of the kingdom of God, which we cannot fathom. And so it is fitting, again, for us to talk about the preparation of Christ as the Passover lamb as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper today. How may we best prepare our hearts for the privilege of coming to the Lord's table? Well, first, we need to consider our sin and his holiness. We need to consider our penchant and leaning towards worldliness and the flesh and his enduring mercy. To consider his faithfulness in the face of our faithlessness. But as we continue in the narrative of the death and resurrection of Christ, we must consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it is not because of our righteousness and our good decisions that we declare ourselves to be saved and, 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 and secure in, in the love of God. It's because of the love of God for us that we could not earn, we could not merit in any way. It is the gospel that will give us life, that will enrich our souls, that will comfort us in sorrow. As Christ himself takes up residence in our hearts through faith, as he does, may we learn to give up everything, even bit by bit, give up everything, because we know that he gave up everything for us, and that in him, Even if we lose everything, we will gain more than we can possibly know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have a true Savior. That we have the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we consider the ways that we may have been compromising with the world and selling bits of our soul away for a little bit of comfort. Lord, we pray that we would cast off the things that are sinful, the things that grieve you and your spirit, and that by your mercy you would lead us in your holy and wonderful way. We thank you, Lord, for your love and mercy. We thank you for your truth and goodness. Father, we pray that you would bless your people, strengthen us, give us grace, lead us in your truth, 
we pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.